Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8. The Bible says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the heap, the hearth upon the altar, all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body. He shall take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off of his garments and put on garments, his appropriate garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall put work shall burn wood on it every morning and they shall lay the burnt offering in order on it and he shall burn the fat of the peace offerings a fire shall always be burning on the altar it shall never go out Lord thank you for your word today pray you speak to our hearts Lord I pray for the spirit of revelation knowledge to rest upon each and every one of us remove any blinders or scales that may be upon our eyes but Lord today I pray that when we leave this place when Lord I Lift my hand that not my fingerprints, but your fingerprints would be upon your people. And we'd leave today saying, my, my, what an awesome God we serve. Lord, we thank you for it today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see each and every one of you today. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. Sunday's like my favorite day of the week. And because uh, I love to just be able to get together and worship and fellowship and serve with you guys. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our series that we've been talking about entitled Revive Us. We've been looking at the subject of revival. Week number one, we, we talked about uh, if my people which were called according to my name shall humble themselves and pray. We specifically said that one of the recipes for revival is humility. Uh, and then we see hunger, who will seek my face. And then three, will turn from their wicked ways, holiness. Hunger, humility, and holiness. On uh, week two, which was last week, we talked about generational Pentecost. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you missed it. Because I went back and I watched the video from last week. And what I did at the end of service, and I, I had several people fuss at me. They said, you just put me in the old folks club. No, I just picked a number. It was random. Okay, we played the lotto on Sunday. It was random. But I said, everybody age 45 and under, come forward. Because we were talking about the generation in the wilderness that came after Joshua who did not know the Lord. And I was trying to show an example. In my mind, was I encouraged to see that many younger families in our church. It was wall to wall to the front. And let me tell you something. I don't know how often you travel or have a lot of pastor friends that you talk to. But not every church can say that. We have a healthy mix of young people, and I believe the church of tomorrow is in good hands. Come on, do you believe that? Say amen. We encouraged our older saints to pray for and impart into the younger generation. I hope you took my words very seriously. Um, this morning, though, however, I want to talk to you about a, something a little bit different. This morning, I want to talk to you about rekindling the fire of prayer, rekindling the fire of consecration, re rekindling the fire of revival, however you want to put it. But this morning, I want to talk to you about rekindling that fire. You know, as we talk about fire, I want you to imagine sitting around a campfire. Have any of you ever sat around a campfire before or a fire pit? It's beautiful. It's so relaxing. Um, 
I want you to imagine going out to a campfire and sitting around. And you're getting the warmth of that fire. Everybody's in community. They're in fellowship. The twigs and all the branches and the kindling have been put upon the fire. And the fire's lit. And now all of a sudden you hear the crackle and the pop of, of all of the different elements coming together. The, the fire is producing community and it's also producing warmth. But I want you to know that aside from just community and warmth, there's another aspect of fire that brings protection. Now, I want to take you into the savannas and the plains of Africa where I've had the opportunity to minister many times. My very first time ever going into Africa was in deep in the bush. We were camped in the Maasai Mara. We had went to the road, ran out. There was no well water, no electricity, no cell phone service. In fact, I had told my wife by the advice of the missionary that uh, if you don't hear from me for three or four days, I have probably not gotten eaten by lions. We just don't have cell service. And so in very, very dangerous areas. And so a, a campfire in that scenario plays a lot of different uh, important purposes. See, the, the uh, little villages that the Messiah live in are called Bomas, B-O-M-A. And, and they're little, it's a circle the community's in a little circle, and they have little thatched mud huts made out of mud and goat manure, and they're all in a circle, and in the middle of this little village area, there is a fire that is continually burning. On the exterior of the little village, there are all the acacia branches and all of the various limbs that they could take to try to detour the wild animals from coming in so that at least if they tried to get close to the fence, they would stick themselves and not come through. But how do you know when a predator is hungry, there's little that can happen for them to be stopped? And so you put the fence up, but one of the deterrents is the fire. As long as we are in that campsite, that fire is to burn. At the end of a day of ministry, not only does it provide fellowship where we can kick up our feet and tell testimonies about the day and how God moved and healed and saved uh, but also, it provides warmth because Africa is a sub-Saharan uh, tr uh, tropic, and so right on the equator, 85 every day, 50 or below every night. It's so wonderful. You get the best of your warmth and your cool. You literally can be in shorts and a t-shirt in the daytime and be in sweatpants and a hoodie at night. It's like, it's like a hot fall all year long. It's wonderful. So not only do you get the community and the warmth, but the fire is a deterrent. For the elephant, it's a deterrent for the lion, the hyena, it's a deterrent for all of the wild beasts that roam in the African darkness. Well, I want you to know that they told us whenever we were out there that there was a, 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 a man that his job was to maintain this fire. In fact, we would sleep in this camp. And there were uh, other Christian Messiah that had been one to the Lord previously who would go along with our team and help us, and they would translate for us. And their job were to be night guards. And so they were to keep an eye on the camp while we sleep, and they were to maintain this fire. But you know, one night, I was recollecting this situation where this brother fell asleep on the fire, and it almost went out. Something jolted him, he heard a noise, and he saw the fire, and he quickly grabbed some kindling. He looked down where the smoke and the ash was, and 
quickly, quickly, he got to his feet and he put some fire or some wood upon that altar and he stacked it up just right. And it was like that African breeze blew right through that camp, right to that fire. And as the oxygen hit that uh, ember of that flame, uh, it rekindled again. And now he realized we're in safety. Because had he let that fire go out, it would have endangered us. Because the fire served as a deterrent. I want you to know something today. When the fire on God's altar goes out in our lives, we find ourselves in danger. My prayer this morning is, God, would you revive us? And would you rekindle the fire of our consecration once again? We need God to rekindle the fire of our consecration once again. I, I want to take your attention this morning to Leviticus chapter 6. As I mentioned, it's a book that a lot of people don't like to read. There's a lot of methodical stuff over and over and over again within the book of Leviticus. But in it, there are prescriptions that God has prescribed for all human history, but particularly for the children of Israel as they were to do things and as they were to progress in their journey and their walk with God. But in that, there was some instruction given for the temple uh, and the tabernacle. I told you at the very beginning as we transitioned service that God created us to live in fellowship. Not only fellowship with him, but fellowship with each other. And Adam was in the beginning, right? And the Bible says that God walked with Adam in the cool of a day. He talked with him face to face. His man talked with a friend. And we know sin happened, transgression separated Adam from God, and Adam hid himself from the presence of the Lord. But we see all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that God desires fellowship with us, and he desires for us to have fellowship with each other. We're supposed to live out our faith in community, right? It's important. But in that, when Moses went up on the mountain, you know, as they're coming out of Egypt, God delivered them supernaturally. God showed himself in a burning bush to Moses, a shepherd who was tending Jethro's sheep. He went in, and Moses, by the direct, direct command of God, went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And after a series of situations and circumstances, we understand that the Passover lamb was offered. The blood was upon the doorpost and the lintel of the house, and the death angel passed over. And wherever the blood was applied, they were passed over and rescued. Israel got up out of their bondage, and in the middle of the night, they left Egypt. Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen behind them. They continue to go, and they find themselves at the Red Sea. It looks like that all hope is lost. They begin to complain and murmur against their leader. Why did you bring us out here, Moses, in the wilderness to die? Were there not any graves in Egypt? After all, we had a better living there than we do right now. And the Bible says that God told Moses to take his staff. He hid it upon the, the Red Sea, and the waters went up, and they went through on dry ground, baptizing his enemies in their rearview mirror, in the judgment of God. Listen, then they go a little bit further, and they find a place of water. They're thirsty. They're longing for something to drink. And somebody tries to drink the water, and it's so bitter, it's undrinkable. They continue to complain and murmur until the Bible says that God showed them a tree. And he took that tree and cast it in the water, and the word became sweet. And, and the water became sweet. And the Bible says on that day, the Lord made an everlasting covenant 
with Israel saying, I will put on you none of the diseases that I have permitted to come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And from that day forward, he was known as the Lord, their healer. Then there were other times where they were hungry and they were complaining and God sent manna down from heaven. The word manna literally means what is it because Israel had never seen anything like that before. But I'm trying to tell you that they're going on this journey because they're walking towards their promise. They're walking towards their promised land. And it was in this wilderness where God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, I want to meet with you. And so Moses went up into Mount Sinai and the fire of God came down. That was evidenced by the people, uh, particularly Aaron and the rest of the people who were at the base of the mountain, because they saw the smoke descend from the mountain as the fire of God came down. It was there where God gave Moses the direction for the Ten Commandments, where he writ them with his very finger. Uh, God spoke to him, and when Moses came off of that mountain, his face shined with the glory of God, and the children of Israel had already backslid into, into bondage and had a golden calf produced out of a fire. We see that, that all of those things happened, but it was in the, one of these holy moments where Moses was in the presence of God, and I'm going somewhere this morning, that God gave him a prescription to build a tabernacle because God wanted his presence to always be manifested among his people Israel. A tabernacle is much like a tent. Some people called it the tent of meeting. It was a, a, a not a permanent place because Israel, as they were traveling, they had to pick up this tabernacle, this, this portable tabernacle, and they had to take it with them. See, these modern-day church planters who have to, they have to pack up their church every week, they ain't got nothing on the Israelites. They had to pack up the Ark of the Covenant. They had to pack up the brazen altar. They had to pack up the candelabra. They had to pack it up and do it everywhere that they traveled. So it was not any uh, small thing to do because God was so meticulous about it. He told them the kind of wood. He told them the color of the fabric the veil was to made out of, how thick it was. He told them that they didn't just need wood, but a case of wood and gold and this much gold and the fabrics and the inlays and everything was just so and so line upon line, precept upon precept. The Ark of the Covenant had to be built a certain way. It had to be transported a certain way. Everything was meticulous. I want you to know something this morning. God is into details. He's a detailed God. He's not a haphazard God. He doesn't do things without thought and forethought. He does things on purpose. He's a detailed God. And so in the middle of all that, he gave them the outline for this permanent, or rather this portable tabernacle. And it was to have an outer court. And this outer court would be where you entered in. And there would be this brazen altar. This altar was to be a place where sacrifices were offered. And outside of that, uh, beside that rather, on the other side would be a, a small tub full of waters called the laver of washing. And after they were bloody from the sacrifice that they had offered, they would wash their hands in this. Then they would go into the inner court. And as they went into the inner court, there were several pieces of furniture there. The first one was the, the candelabra, the menorah. It was the uh, seven... A headed uh, lampstand that symbolized the, the, the spirit of God and the presence of God. Uh, aside from that was the table of showbread, and that light would shine upon this showbread. 
okay? Then on the other side of this, right outside of the Holy of Holies, where you could only go in certain times, certain places, and had to be prepared, right outside of that was the altar of incense, where hot coals were, where that priest would take that incense, and they would offer it on those hot coals, and it would produce such a fragrance. And when everything was right, they could go in behind the veil into the presence of God. It was a very meticulous thing. And in Leviticus chapter 6, God gives them very specific instructions as it relates to this. And so I want you to, to go with me this morning back to our text. And, and I am going to give you what the Lord gave me today. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be upon the hearth. Uh, shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning. And the priest shall put on a linen garment, and his linen trousers shall be upon his body. He shall take the ashes of the burnt offering, uh, which the fire has consumed, which would have been yesterday's offering. He would have put it uh, beside the altar, put on appropriate garments, taken that and taken it back outside. Look at what verse 12 says. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning upon it, and it shall not be put out. That priest shall put wood on it every morning. Somebody say every morning. And he laid the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. A fire shall be always burning on the altar. It shall never go out. God was very specific. This altar was to always have fire on it. It was to never go out. Now, here's what we don't know that's found elsewhere in Scripture. This altar, when they built this brazen altar... God himself would come down from heaven and light this fire. See, when Israel traveled in the wilderness, God had, God had had a conversation with Moses, and Moses had said, Lord, if we leave from here, how will we know you're with us? I don't want to go without your presence. And the Lord told him, said, I will always be with you. And the Bible says that in the hot of the day, it was a, was a, was, there was a cloud. And then at night, there was a pillar of fire. And God manifested himself in that way. But here's what the Bible says, that whenever they built that altar, they laid the wood to where it was supposed to be, and they took that offering and put it upon that altar. They were to step back from it. They were not allowed to light that fire. God from heaven came down and lit that fire. In fact, there was a prohibition in the Scripture about these men not lighting this fire, so much so that we see an instance of this in the Scripture with Nadab and Abihu. The Bible says they offered strange fire. Strange fire was fire that the Lord had not lit. The people lit the fire. But God said, if you want fire on my altar, you've got to let me light that fire. So here, here's, here we go, here we go. It was God who lit the fire, but it was the priest's responsibility to not let it go out. I don't want to get into this too far yet, but I wanted to say this before I go any further. It's nobody else's responsibility to maintain your fire. If you're not on fire for God, it's not the youth pastor's fault, the missionary's fault, the pastor's fault. It's not even your mama's fault. Your responsibility is to maintain the fire on your own altar. All right? That was free. 
But I want to I talk to you for a few moments. Number one, if you're a note taker, write this down. Number one, the fire in this tabernacle, it was practical. See, in this room, we've got lights and light switches, and we even have different adjustments. But in the, in the temple and the tabernacle, the permanent and the, and the, uh, the non-permanent, there was no lighting system. And so the fire served as a very practical thing. As a house would have a lamp, so the temple would have a place to give light. Light is meant to dispel darkness. It's meant to show the way. It's meant for us to be able to not stumble around in the darkness. It was uh, illumination, if you will. So this fire was, was very practical. I found out that God is both very practical and he's spiritual. See, we are, we are um, we're spiritual beings having an earthly experience. And if you want to get along in earth and do things, you know, and, and have your uh, existence be really well down here, you, you got to know how to operate in earth, right? Because we're a spirit. When we're, we die, our body goes on to the grave, but our spirit lives eternally in the presence of the Lord. And so you don't have to do, you know, push-ups, or you don't have to do bicep curls to make your spirit strong, but your body, you do have to work. So God is very practical, and he is equally spiritual. This fire served a very practical purpose. It was to give illumination in the darkness. But I want to move from there real quickly this morning to my second point. I'm going to show you that this fire was spiritual. This continuous fire represented the perpetual presence of God among his people. It served as a symbol of God's constant watchfulness and his divine presence. In other words, God said, when you come to my house, and in those days that was his house, because the Ark of the Covenant lived there, the presence of God rested between the mercy seat. He said, if you come to my house, I want there to be fire. I don't want any wet blankets in my house. I don't, I don't want people trying to snuff out the fire. But that fire was to ever be burning upon that altar. When you went to God's house, you should go expecting to see fire. If you got there and there was no fire, you should obviously understand you must have come to the wrong place. Because that sacrifice was prepared and the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed that sacrifice. It was wonderful. That fire represented God's presence. You know, in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, everywhere in between, the presence of God is signified in many different ways. Fire, oil, wind, breath, many different things. Rain, but in this instance, God's presence was symbolized by fire. People knew when they come into this place, God had been there. Why? Because man was not allowed to light that fire. Can I tell you something? That when people come to church, we need to make sure that they experience real fire and not strange fire. And I'm going to show you something in a minute. I don't know if y'all are ready for this. Number two, not only was the fire spiritual. Number three, the instructions were clear. The instructions were clear. If you want God's results, you have to do it God's way. The offering had to be laid in order. 
not out of order. It had an order to it. But not only that, but the fire that was upon that altar was to ever be burning. Okay? Not only that, but in our text what we read was that the priest, every day, in fact, not just one time a day, but three times a day, if you read into the Hebraic text, that priest would take an ash heap or a, a, a shovel with a pan, and he would shovel out the ashes of yesterday's fire. He was to take it, put it beside the altar, change out of his ministering garments, and go and take it outside of the camp to a clean place where it would not be defiled. It was a duty of instruction that fire was to ever be burning upon that altar. There weren't a lot of jobs that those priests were tasked to just maintain all the time. There were few. But from what I read, the most important one was that the fire on that altar should never go out. It shall ever be burning. This morning, I want to take you onto a backstage tour of the tabernacle. Are y'all ready? I want you to imagine that we're walking into the outer court. We are in the outer court, and here is this brazen altar. And this altar has a fire upon it. It's the place where we offer our sacrifice to God. It's a place of consecration. The altar is a place of death. We die to our own will. We die to our own way. We die to yes me and start saying yes Lord. It's a place where we offer unto him that which he requires. It's not a pretty place. It's a smelly place. I don't know if you've ever took a trip inside of a slaughterhouse or you've slaughtered chickens or you've slaughtered deer or you have dressed a wild animal. You understand that the process is not pretty. The blood and the guts and all of the things that mix together, it is not a pleasant aroma. It is the smell of death. You see, the altar is a place where we die to ourselves and we come alive to Christ. And our ultimate goal is to get into the presence of God, right? But God said you can't just jump back there. Not in the Old Testament. You had to first come to the brazen altar. And the priest had those instructions. What were they? The fire on this altar shall never go out. Never, never. Somebody say never. Now, have you ever wondered to yourself why God was so specific about those instructions? I mean, what would happen if it went out, right? Glad you asked. You see, in order to get to the next step, you had to wash your hands, symbolizing repentance. And then you go into the inner court, and there's this seven-headed candelabra golden candlestick. That candlestick represents God's presence. It represents illumination. It represents revelation. Don't believe me, in the book of Revelation, there was a church that had not done what the Lord had asked them to do, and he gave them a stark warning. And he said, 
that unless you repent, I will come and remove your candlestick from you. I will remove my presence from you. In essence, you'll be Ichabod. The presence of the Lord has departed. The candlestick had those seven heads, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God, spirit of wisdom, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of truth. They're all found in the book of Isaiah. That candelabra was there, casting its light upon the table of showbread. So you might be asking yourself the question, why, what's the significance of the fire on the altar never going out? Why? Because the fire on the altar, the brazen altar, is symbolized of our consecration to God. Every morning we were to put a sacrifice upon that thing. But here's what I learned. That seven-headed candelabra, the fire had to be maintained on that as well. And would you like a guess of where that fire was told it had to come from? The fire on the candelabra, according to Scripture, had to come from the brazen altar. So if the brazen altar goes out, you lose your fire on the candelabra. And here's what I come to tell somebody this morning. The moment that the fire of your consecration dies, your insight, your inspiration, and your revelation dies. People want to know, how come I come to church and I can't feel God's presence? How come I read my Bible and I don't understand it? Because you have no consecration. Somewhere, someplace, you've allowed the fire on the altar of your heart to go out. Because when you go past this place, the fire that is from one area is passed on to the next area. That fire, that candelabra is overshadowing the table of showbread. In Scripture, that, that bread is said to represent Christ, but the Bible says about Jesus, I am the bread that came down from heaven. The Bible also says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen, I'm telling you this morning that that candelabra represents revelation and, and insight of the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens when we have a place of consecration? Guess what happens when we have a place of prayer where the fire of God's altar is burning upon our hearts? He's constantly speaking to us. He's showing us his word. He's showing us his way. But guess what happens when we divorce the process when we lose our fire here hear me we lose our fire there and if you show me a dry Christian I'll show you one that doesn't have a regular altar experience that's good preaching for a young guy like me but it doesn't stop there after you get past the showbread then you come to the altar of incense where they took these hot coals into a pile and that priest took that incense, put it upon that altar and it radiated up into heaven. We sing a song, you are worthy of it all and in that song it says day and night, night and day let incense arise because that, that's where it comes from. The altar of incense in the Old Testament. It's not some new age thing. It's God's prescribed plan. It was a symbol of the people's worship and their prayer and their devotion to God. But I got news for you this morning. You want to know where the coals from the altar of incense came from? It came from the brazen altar. 
So you want to know why now God is so, so forceful about not allowing the fire to go out? It shall ever be burning. Because if you let the fire of consecration go out of your life, the next thing you're going to lose is your inspiration and revelation. And then the next thing you're going to lose is your worship. People come to church, they don't worship. Reason why you don't worship, because you've not been to an altar. I mean, and I'm not saying you've got to run laps and be all exuberant, but you know, you know if you're disconnected or not. But when you come to an altar, you experience his fire. And when you experience his fire, you can't help but to worship and praise. When you experience his fire, you can't help but to pray. God's instruction was clear. Now, let's get to this for a second. I've not even gotten to the good part yet. They took the ashes from yesterday's sacrifice and they had to carry them away. You want to know why? I told you, God's both practical and he's spiritual. Anybody who's ever barbecued knows to get the best result, you got to clean the grill out before you use it next time. You know why? Because the soot and ash of your last barbecue will kill the fire of your next one. And you know why the priest had to do that every day? Because there's nothing more that will hinder your fire than holding on to the fire you used to have. Some of you are still trying to live off a fire you got in a camp meeting in 1982, and you have not moved on with Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, it's time to shovel that stuff out of your life and let God start a new fire on the inside of you. Children of Israel had to get manna out of the camp uh, uh, every day except for on, the, on, on uh, Friday, and then they had to pick up two days' worth for the Sabbath. Fresh bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God is beckoning us today to do this. All right, you ready? Pastor, why are you preaching all this Old Testament stuff? You know, we got Jesus and all that stuff. Well, it's interesting. The Bible says that the Old Testament was written as an example for those upon whom the end of the world has come, and I would say we're there. We've got AI and aliens and all the kind of crazy UFO stuff, and you tell you our news today seems like a sci-fi movie. What's the significance? Well, in the Old Testament, when God told them to build that tabernacle, which was a place of fellowship, consecration and intimacy they were told to build that altar and that God would light the fire now I thought about this they were in that temporary portable tabernacle that meant they had to move it while it was burning they had to go with them wherever they went but you know when they got to their permanent place Come through the lineage of King David. David had a desire to build God a house. But because of David's sin with Bathsheba, though God had forgiven him, there was consequences, and there were several consequences. But one of those consequences was that he was not able to build that house himself that God wanted him to build. So he said, I'll let your son Solomon do it. So again, all of the prescribed things, 
the gold, the silver, and they took offerings of a free willing heart. And it was, the Bible says that, that there came a point where they had to tell the people to stop bringing the offerings. Never been there, it would be nice, but they didn't have room for it anymore. This temple, the permanent structure, was so beautiful that the queen of Sheba came to visit. The Bible says that the breath left her body. It literally means she fainted when she saw the beauty of the house that Solomon built for God. But in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 and, and on, when that prayer of consecration is given to Israel and that prayer in that tabernacle, that temple was built when it was dedicated, the Bible says God came down from heaven and answered by fire. Listen, God vindicated solidified, not vindicated, but God solidified and validated the tabernacle and the temple by kissing it with fire. You know why? His presence lived there. Now, buckle up. Jesus resurrected. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. The presence of God no longer lives in a tent or a tabernacle or a place like this made with hands. The day of Pentecost, something supernatural happened. Something supernatural happened. See, the Bible says that they were given an invitation to an upper room. 500 people were invited to be precise. 380 swiped decline on Jesus' invitation. How dumb can you be? And 120 people showed up to an upper room. And they assembled to pray, to make themselves a sacrifice to Almighty God. The Bible says... That when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all one place, one accord, and there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And watch this. I've always wondered the significance of this, and it hit me like that. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like of a fire, and it sat upon each. Somebody say each. Notice this, the wind filled the room, the sound filled the room. The fire sat upon each of them. You know why? Because God's presence no longer lives in a temple or a tabernacle. Paul said it like, don't clap yet, because I'm not there yet. Paul said it like this. Paul said it like this, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In whom God dwells. So here's what I want you to understand. That when God birthed the church, just like he solidified the temple, just like he solidified the tabernacle, he kissed his church with fire. That's why some of you, 
Some of you know John 3.16, but you need to learn Luke 3.16 because the Bible says that John the Baptist stooped down and he said, Behold, there's one coming after me whose shoes I'm unworthy to loose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire. Now notice this. In all of those instances, and I'm done. In all of those instances, the tabernacle, the temple, God lit the fire when the sacrifice was prepared right. But the priest was required to maintain his fire. I want you to know something. It is no different in the New Testament. I want to show you why. I believe in always giving scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6. Paul is speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, and here's what he said. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The NIV reads it like this. Therefore, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Folks, here's what I'm trying to say this morning. God wants to baptize his people with fire. But you cannot get it without an altar of consecration. I don't know how many times I got to get up on this platform and hoot and holler about it. I'm being serious. The most important thing we do as a church is not sing. Sing is important. The most important thing we do is not the offering. The offering is important. The most important thing we do is not the preaching. The preaching is important. The most important thing we do is pray. Jesus said, you shall, uh, you, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. He didn't say house of preaching. Well, I like the preaching. Because the preaching is not supposed to, what's, what's supposed to keep you here. The fire of God, which is God's presence, should draw you here. My house shall be called a house of prayer, consecration. See, a lot of people are afraid of the altar. Well, I don't want people to think that I've done something. And listen, I want to just state the obvious here. This is a place we use as an altar. But this does not look anything like what a biblical altar would have been like. Certainly wouldn't have been padded. There wouldn't have been Kleenex boxes under it. And it wouldn't have looked like a pew with a back cut off of it. But it's a place that we use. But here's the truth. An altar can be beside your bed. An altar can be at your coffee table. An altar is a place anywhere that you consecrate yourself to God and say, God, I'm dying to myself. Here's what Romans says, and I'm closed. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Every day, here's what I'm trying to say. If you want to maintain the fire of God upon the altar of your heart, you got to die daily. Not once a week, not at the youth camp, not at revival, not at camp meeting, not when you're watching Jimmy Swagger. Come on. You got to die daily. Every day before your feet hit that floor, you got to die to yourself and say, Lord, I'm living to you. I promise you if you do that, your revelation of God's word will get better because you're providing fire. I promise you if you do that, your worship and your prayer will get better. Why? Because you're providing fire. But if you let this go, all of that suffers. So as God commanded through Moses to tell the people, 
that the fire on their altar should never go out. Here's my challenge to you, church. Don't let the fire on your altar go out. You are responsible for your own fire. You said, well, hold on, Pastor. It was the priest's job. Yep, guess what? The Bible says we're all a kingdom of priests because we minister to the Lord. Hallelujah. This morning, I'm telling you, it's time to put some wood on on the altar this morning. It's time to put a sacrifice on the altar and watch heaven kiss earth again. Hallelujah. Stand up on your feet with me today.